you haven't already turned there, I would invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We are no longer in Hebrews chapter 11. We're now in Hebrews chapter 12. We went to visit Haley. Uh, her birthday, her actual birthday is today. She is 20 years old today. We rushed down on Thursday, spent Friday with her, went out to eat with friends, and, and then uh, drove back yesterday. And she said, uh, Daddy, what are, you, what are you preaching on Sunday? And I said, Hebrews chapter 12. <laughs> she said, you're still in Hebrews? He said, you started Hebrews before I went off to college. I was like, oh, man, well, I guess I did. My thought was that, that I would just take chunks of Hebrews, and I would, we would look at that. But after I got through reading the first few verses, I thought, well, those next few verses are really good. Let's talk about that. And so now we're just really preaching it verse by verse, and I hope that that's okay because um, that's where we are. But we're no longer in 11. We're now in chapter 12 of Hebrews. And it starts out, therefore, and you know preachers will tell you, anytime you see a therefore, you got to stop and see what is it there for. This word that's translated therefore is not the typical word that is translated therefore. It's used here, and it's used only one other time in all of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 8 those that are scholars in the Greek language will tell us, if you know about the, the language and about syntax and how they organize it, this word is, is, is so strong, and it's placed right at the very beginning of the sentence. And it's saying, everything that has come before, all the stuff that we have just talked about in Hebrews chapter 11 for the last two years, now we want to connect that with what is is fixing to be said. Therefore, therefore, he says. So this is so strong. Everything that we've just talked about for, for really the several weeks is now coming to a, a culmination here in Hebrews chapter 12. Those of you of a certain age uh, will remember, guys and girls alike, uh, we would go to gym class, and oftentimes uh, when we were uh, working out or preparing, say maybe you ran track, I played a lot of basketball, we would put uh, little ankle weights around our ankles. You remember those? They weighed maybe a pound or two pounds. I don't remember how much they weighed. But you would strap them on your ankles, and then you would actually work out. You would, would go jogging or you would run laps. Or sometimes we, uh, in pre preparing for basketball practice, we would warm up and we would wear those ankle weights. And after a while, you kind of get used to it. But you would never, ever run a race in, in, in those. You would never, ever actually play a basketball game in those. After you had worn those for a little while, you would take them off of your ankles. And man, it was like you could run faster. You could jump higher. It felt like you had been unburdened of this extra weight. Have you ever seen people like they'll wear like a weighted vest? When they're working out, you've seen, you seen that, do push-ups, try to do pull-ups with, with a little extra weight. I'm going to tell you what, it's hard enough to pull up this body weight without anything added to it. But the idea is that you're going to work out and you're going to use this and it's going to make you stronger. But then you're going to take that off. You're going to take that weight off so that you can be unencumbered to actually run the race, to actually do what it is that you're doing. 
The Hebrew writer says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that word cloud there is a very special word. It's used several times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, but this is the only time that it's used here in the New Testament. It's a very special word. James, the young lady that you talked about meeting in West Africa, she would fit in very well with this great cloud of witnesses. All of these people that we just got through reading about in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Abel, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah, by faith, a man named Abraham, by faith, Moses. We talked about last week, all of these people. I don't have time to talk about Samson and Jephthah and Barak and Joseph and all of these people. People like you described before the Lord's table. I know of men and women in Ghana and in Togo who came to know the Lord, and because they chose to follow Jesus, some were ostracized by their families. Those who had Muslim backgrounds, many of their families disowned them. A young lady was baptized into Christ, and she went home, and her father nearly beat her to death. Those are real stories. That's not just Hebrews chapter 11. That's men and women today, people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, and it came with a, with a, with a high price. It cost them a lot. That's not just something that we read about from Hebrews 11 but it goes on every day in our world. People that come to know Jesus. It's so foreign to us here in this Western world, but that's the reality. And so the Hebrew writer, uh, he, he conjures up this idea of a race. Now, what I want you to understand is the language that he uses here is figurative. Since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, we, we often like to think about this in terms of all of, these, all of these people in Hebrews 11, the Moseses and the Abrahams, and even people that we know, our grandparents, maybe people that we love, maybe your spouse, maybe your child that's no longer with us. And, and we love to have this thought that there is this great cloud of witnesses sort of peering over the, the edge of heaven looking at us cheering us on, telling us to keep running, keep going. You can do it. We did it. We finished the race. You can too. That's a beautiful picture. I'm not so sure that that's what the Hebrew writer is, is telling us. I don't know that that is what uh, the text would say to us. What he's saying to us is that we are to be looking back at those people Instead of them watching us, we're to, we're to watch their lives. We're to look at their lives to see how they lived, to see that even after being beaten within an inch of your life, they stayed the course. They would not renounce a faith in Jesus because they were seeing something that was invisible. They were seeing something that was not tangible, but they believed it with all of their hearts. And so these people would indeed this great cloud of witnesses would indeed tell us, stay the course, don't give up. If you remember back in, at the end of chapter 10, turn over, because Hebrews chapter 11 was sort of like one huge parenthetical statement. At the end of chapter 10, the writer tells them in verse 32, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest. 
Here's that contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and to persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. He's telling these people, you have gone through so much already. They, they, they were being tempted to, to stop following Jesus, to turn from that. And he's saying, listen, guys, you've already gone through so much. You've already suffered. He says, don't throw away your confidence because it will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. He says, we don't want to be those who, who throw it all away. We don't want to be those who quit. And he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and, and are destroyed, but we are of those who believe and are saved. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's telling those early believers, you've already suffered so much. Don't throw that away. Don't let that be for nothing. Stay the course. Look at Abraham. Look at what Moses gave up. Look at what all these people did. Some of them were beaten. Some of them were stoned. Some of them were imprisoned. Some were sawn in two, cut in half. They would look at you and they would tell you, don't give up. Stay the course. Because we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us. Let us throw off every weight. Maybe your translation says that. Let's get rid of every weight that would slow us down on this journey of faith. Now, he's going to tell us something about sin, but what I want to say to you right here is that just like those ankle weights, just like those weighted vests that people train with, you, you want to get rid of that. The Hebrew writer is not necessarily talking about sin here, okay? He's talking about getting rid of anything that would hinder us on this journey of faith. See, oftentimes we just think about trying to get rid of the sin in our life. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a second. But he's saying get rid of every weight, everything that might slow you down on this uh, journey of faith. See, what might that be? <laughs> well, it could be, it could be any number of things. And I'm talking about things that are not sinful, not things that we look at and say, oh, that's so evil, that's so bad. I'd never want to be a part of that. I'd never want to uh, do that. No, no, no. I'm talking about some things that are even good, some things that are even right. I've known, I've known several preachers who had children Preacher was, was so involved in church and so involved in ministry and praying with other people and teaching Bible classes and preaching lessons, and they neglected the raising of their own children. Do you know any PKs that turned out like that? We call them PKs, preacher's kids. Sometimes they're just, <laughs> they're just rough. And I've told you, I think a large part of 
them turning out bad is because they played with deacons' kids. You know, they, they were raised up playing with the deacons' kids, and that's what, you know, contributed to some of that. But listen, you can be involved in things that are good and holy and right, and it hindered your journey. You could be involved in, in, in things that help to, to relax your mind, to, to help relieve you of stress, and those are good things. We need recreation. We need to recreate our minds so that we can have the energy and the zeal to keep going. But we can do some of that recreation so much that, that it actually hinders us on the journey. So the Hebrew writer would say, you've got to get rid of those things, anything that hinders you. Any weight that slows you down, anything that encumbers you on this uh, journey of faith, you've got to get rid of that. And in addition to that, he says, we also have got to get rid of the sin that so easily entangles. I love the old King James, the sin that so easily besets us. Now, some commentators say that the sin that the Hebrew writer is talking about here is actually the sin of, of giving up too quickly, of not running all the way through the tape, of running the race but then saying, no, I, I, I can't do it anymore. I quit. I give up. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of being made fun of. I'm tired of, of, of being laughed at and jeered. Following Jesus, the Messiah, you think he's the Messiah? Really? you got to be kidding me. I'm tired of that. And so some commentators will say that the sin that he's talking about here that so easily entangles is the sin of giving up, quitting too soon, because that's what he's encouraging them not to do, right? We don't want to be those who shrink back and give up. We want to be those that persevere. I think that that might, might be part of it. But if you and I are really honest with ourselves, if we're really honest, we look in the mirror, and, and Shakespeare said, above all else, to thine own self be true, right? Don't, don't kid yourself. <laughs> don't kid yourself. If we're really honest, each one of us has something. There's some sin. There's, there's something that tugs on us, that pulls at us. Above everything else, you know, there, 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 are, there are so many things in life that just have no attraction for me. That I just would have, want to have nothing to do with those things. Those things don't bother me. They don't tempt me. But there are some things, if I'm really honest, that tug at me, that pull at me. You know, there are some people that they, they can't drink one drink of alcohol because it just it sends them over the edge. One drink turns into 10 and 20. Yeah, my, my mother's older brother, my uncle, there were years of his life that he never drew a sober breath. And it would make me so angry because I loved him. I loved him so much. He was so, 
He was so funny. He was the funniest man I've ever known. He could just tell a joke, and, and, and you thought he was, was telling it for truth, but at the last moment, he would just drop you, and, and everybody would laugh, and I would just be like, I just want to be just like him. He just, he's such a neat guy. He would, he would take me. He, he built houses in northeast Arkansas for, for a time, and, and when I would go when I was a, a young boy, I would go and I would ride in his truck, and we'd go and look at all the houses that he had going. He'd always buy me a new hat. I'd come back, and he'd say, did you bring your hat? And I'd say, no, and uh, he'd go buy me a new hat. And my mom would say, Don, don't you let Rodney drive. Don't you let him drive. He's too young. And so he'd say, okay, okay. And we'd get about a half a mile away from the house, and he'd pull over, and he'd say, you want to drive? I'm like 10 or 11 years old. I'm like, yeah, I'd like to drive. I mean, everybody was driving tractors out there, so uh, a lot of young boys were driving. So he'd pull over and and uh, we'd switch places. He'd kind of sit close to me in case he needed to, you know, grab the wheel or, or hit the brake. But he would let me drive. And so we would go and visit. As I got older, really kind of toward my teenage years, my Uncle Don, we would go and he would have been drinking. And then every day we were there, just drink and drink and drink. And I would be so angry with him. We are only here for a few days, and you can't sober up. You can't stop drinking for two or three days while I'm here. And he wouldn't even draw a sober breath, wouldn't even really even know that I was there, you know. And it, break, it broke my heart. Some people can't, can't even sniff a little bit of alcohol because it sends them over the edge. You know, you know what it is. You've been around the block enough that you know that there's something that you cannot even begin because if you do, it'll suck you in and you'll find that you're wasting so much time in that area. Turn over a page or two. I'm, I, I just want to show you this because this is so important. This is so important what we're talking about here. We've got to get rid of everything that hinders us. I'm in James chapter 1. Everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us, the sin that so easily besets us. Look at James chapter 1. Let's fast forward uh, to verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one, look at this, this is the anatomy of sin. This is the life cycle of sin, if you will. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sin, it says, happens when we are dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. Sin always starts with a thought. No one ever is just sitting on the couch and says, I'm going to go sin. <laughs> they just get up and go sin. No, 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 it doesn't happen that way. 
It starts with a thought. A thought comes into your mind. Something happens, something on TV, something that comes across the screen on your hand, and you're, you're just looking, and, and then there's a thought that pops into your mind. And there is something in your flesh. There's something in your flesh that desires that. The old comedian said, the devil made me do it, right? The devil made me do it. No, no, no. The devil may set the table, but it's your flesh. It's my flesh that has this desire. And so the devil may set the table, but we, we belly up to it, don't we? So I want to ask you, when that thought comes into your mind, that thought is going to start enticing you. You're going to think about something. And then after a while, if you think about it long enough, you're going to get up off the couch and you're going to begin to do that thing. That, that gives birth to sin. And then that sin, when that sin keeps growing and gets full grown, it gives birth to death. Now let me ask you, where in that life cycle is it best to deal with sin? After the sin is full grown? After it's big and strong? When is the best time to deal with it? When it's a thought. When it first enters the mind. When it begins to, to tug at you. The Bible says we take every thought captive. We take every thought captive and bring that under the lordship, the headship of Jesus Christ. We say, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to do that. Because that is a sin that so easily besets me that I can get tangled up in so quickly. No, you don't want to let that give birth. You don't want to let that give birth to sin. You don't want the sin to give birth to death. You want to, you want to nip it in the bud, Ange. Remember that? Isn't that what Barney said? When Barney said to Ange, Ange he says, you got to nip it in the bud. That's what the Hebrew writer would tell us. That's what the book of James would tell us. Don't let it grow. Nip it in the bud. Get rid of it. Because we're on a race. We're in a race. Back to Hebrews chapter 12. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We're in a race, and it's not a 50-yard dash. It's not a 100-yard dash. You know, when, when those guys run those dashes and those ladies stand there at the beginning, they have the, those starting blocks because they're going to push off, and they're going to run with everything that they've got for about 10 seconds, 10 or 11 seconds. If I were running it, it'd be more like 20 seconds or something like that. But I would, I would get there. It wouldn't take me all day. But that's not the kind of race that, that he's talking about. We're talking about a marathon. We're talking about a lifelong journey. And he says, we've got to run the race that is set before us. Now, let me just say this. Each one of us has a race to run. Each one of us has a race that's been set before us. I can't run your race for you. And guess what? You can't run my race for me. Now, we can help one another. 
My wife can help me on my race. She can encourage me. She can give me wise counsel. But she can't run my race. And I can do the same for her. But I can't run her race. Each one of us has a race that's been set before us. And God is telling us to run that race. Now, some of you say young mothers who have little ones, you might be thinking to yourself, you know, before I had kids, I, I had so much time for, for Bible study. I could, I could attend the ladies' Bible class on Tuesdays. I could have prayer time. But now I, I, I don't even know if I'm coming or going, you know, between, between the, the diaper changes and the formula and, and the minivans and going here and going there, you know. That is not something that hinders you. That is your race right now. Are you with me? That is your race right now. There'll come a time, Lord willing, there'll come a day when when you'll have more time to yourself, to hear yourself think, to maybe read your Bible again. But see, the race for you right now is is the raising and the nurturing of those young children. That is your race. That's not a hindrance. That's not something that you want to throw off, even though sometimes you feel like it. But that is your race. He says we've got to run the race with perseverance. We've got to run the race with endurance. And the word race, that that Greek word that, that is used for race, that's where we get the word agony, agonize. What does that tell you about the race? What does that say about the race? It's going to come with some trials. It's going to be hard. It's going to be something that, that you're going to have to endure. Now, I don't, want you, I don't want you to think that the Christian life is just, is just one series of negative things after another, and we've just got to, oh, I've just got to endure this life so that I can maybe one day go to heaven and finally enjoy things. That's not the Christian life. We should be the happiest, most joyful people around. But you've got to know that this race, this journey of faith is going to be fraught with some troubles, with some struggles. You're going to have to endure. Just the word endure or the word persevere just conjures up that that it's going to be hard, right? It's not just all going to be a cakewalk. It's not just like going out for a a Sunday stroll, going to the park and just, you know, you got your dog on the leash and everybody, you know, you're just kind of walking, you stop. That, that's not this kind of race. You got to persevere. You have to endure the race that's marked out for us. How do we do that? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. My my text, the NIV that I'm reading from, says the author and perfecter of our faith. The word our is not in the original language. It just says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. I think Justin, when he read it, he read the pioneer. Jesus is the pioneer. I like that. He's the pioneer. He's the author of faith. Jesus was the first and the only individual to ever run this race perfectly. 
without sin. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet was without sin. That's what we read in Hebrews earlier. So Jesus has been on this race, the only one who has run this race perfectly, every day listening to the Father, every day doing what the Father told him to do, every day saying only what the Father gave him to say. Jesus said, I can do nothing apart from the Father. What the Father says to me, I say to you. If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father, because I do exactly what the Father would want me to do. At every day, at every point, Jesus, he said no to sin. He said yes to the Father. So Jesus is now the author of faith, and he's the perfecter of that faith. He came and did what you and I couldn't do. He's the beginning of faith, and he's the end of faith. He's the alpha, and he's the omega, the author and the perfecter of faith. So he says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. You see, all those people that he's been telling us about in Hebrews chapter 11, oh, they ran the race, they by faith they did this, by faith they did that. But if you look at those lives, those men and those women, long enough, you're going to find out that they weren't perfect, that they made mistakes. Oh, it would be great to emulate the faith of Abraham. But Abraham said, she's, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Tell him, tell him that you're my, you're my sister, not my wife, right? If you look long enough... And all those great people in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, you're going to find that they had feet of clay, that they made mistakes. But not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. And so the writer says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he'll never let you down. Everything he did, you could emulate. Everywhere he went, you could go freely, and God would be pleased with you. God would be happy with you. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross? What was the joy that was set before Jesus how was he able to go to the cross? Oh, he didn't want to go. He didn't want to, he didn't want to endure the cross. He didn't want to hang there in front of all those people, beaten, nails in his hands and his feet, a crown of thorns mocking him. He thinks he's a, he's a king. How about this? How about a crown of thorns on your head? Hanging there naked humiliated for all the world to see. He didn't want to do that. But who for the joy set before him, he was able to go. He was able to endure. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Remember going back a ways. I want to remind you of something. Hebrews chapter 2. Did I say 10? Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. I was not wrong. I thought I was, but I wasn't. 
Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. Let's go back to verse 9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Look at this. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see, part of the joy that was set before Jesus was the knowledge that going to the cross, the shame, the torture, the humiliation, going through all of that was going to lead to a Sunday morning, maybe just like a Sunday like today, and it was going to lead to his resurrection from the dead. And because of the power of his rising, it was going to allow him to bring many sons to glory. You see, part of the joy that was set before Jesus was the knowledge that he was now creating a path to heaven. Jesus left heaven and came to earth so that we could leave this earth and one day go to heaven. He's creating, if you will, a stairway to heaven for us. A path on which we can walk. And so that joy was set before him and he says, I'll do it. I'll go to the cross. It'll be worth it. All of the pain, all of the rejection, all the humiliation, all the stripes on my back will be worth it because I will bring many sons and many daughters to glory. That's part of the joy that was set before him. But I want you to think about this as well. We talked about this a little bit Wednesday night. I wanted to talk about it more. John chapter 17. You know that this is part of this joy that was set before him. John chapter 17 Jesus said in verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In addition to Jesus making a way for us to go to heaven, to be with him, to be with the Father, he knew that after he suffered, that after he endured the cross, after he was raised from the dead, that very shortly he was going to ascend back to the Father where he rightfully belongs, where he had been for all eternity with the Father, with the Spirit, the three of them, one God together, fellowship and harmony and love and everything that, that they did. He knew that he was going back to the Father. And so he said, I'll do it. I'll go through the cross. I'll go through the pain, the agony, because I'm going to bring many sons and daughters with me eventually, and I'm, I get to go back to the Father where I rightfully belong. He endured the cross scorning at shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Greek would intimate that he didn't just sit down, but he's still there, 
seated on the throne where he belongs. And so he says, consider him. Think about Jesus. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's what he's writing the letter to them about. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Stay the course. Keep the faith. How do you do that? You fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. My, my, where has the time gone? I want you to know that the reason, the reason that you need to run this race, the reason you need to keep your eyes on Jesus is because, first of all, we have a real adversary. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The book of James says that if you will resist the devil, he will flee from you. You're running your race, and guess what? You resist the devil, he's on the run. All right? We have a real adversary. Secondly, we've got to, to run this race to stay spiritually fit. The Apostle Paul would say that, that physical race, physical um, fitness is, is, is good for some things, but godliness, godliness is where it's at. Uh, so we, got, we have to stay spiritually fit. Thirdly, our course, our race is predestined for glory. Don't have time to talk about all that. Man, I don't know where the time went this morning. But I just love good preaching. I just love to hear good preaching. Amen. <laughs> if you have said that often, I'd be through by now. The very beginning of the book of Hebrews says that in the past, God spoke to us through the prophets in many and various ways. But now, but now, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden when, when mankind sinned that the serpent would bruise his heel, but yet he would crush the serpent's head. You remember that? That's all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. God promised that Jesus would come, and he made good on his promise. We knew that he would come. Because God said he would. Story is told of a young man who was, was fighting in the war. He was embedded in a foxhole. Bullets were whizzing over his head. And as he was there, just sort of hunkered down, he heard someone calling his name. He, call, he heard someone saying, John, John. He looked around on both sides, and he realized that his friend had exited the foxhole and was now laying out in the open. He'd been hit by enemy fire. John, John, came the voice. And the young boy started to get out of the foxhole, and, and his sergeant grabbed him, and he says, Do not leave this foxhole. Don't go out there. There's no way you'll make it. And yet again, the voice came, John, John. 
The boy could stand it no longer. His friend was out there, and he, he crawled out of the foxhole, and immediately the bullet started flying, and he was hit, mortally wounded. He's out there for maybe a minute or two. He begins to crawl back, and as he gets to the edge of the foxhole, the sergeant pulls him down, and he sees that the boy is, is mortally wounded. And he, the sergeant looks at him, and he says, I told you. I told you not to go. He said, you have given your life for a dead man. That boy was dead, and you gave your life for him. And he looked up into a sergeant's eyes, and he said, it was worth it. Because when I got to my buddy, I took his head in my hands, and he said to me, I knew you would come. I knew you would come. God promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden that he would send his son. And Jesus, we knew you would come. Thank you.